Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast. If you love tennis and want to improve your game, this podcast is for you. Whether it's technique, strategy, equipment, or the mental game, tennis professional Ian Westerman is here to make you a better player. And now, here's Ian. Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Tennis Express. Please check them out this week by going to EssentialTennis.com slash Express. I've got a great interview lined up for all of you today with Brent Abel, and I ask him several questions about getting better at tennis, about tennis strategy, tennis technique, both singles and doubles, and, and about getting better when you feel like you're stuck in a rut. And Brent has some some great insights. I know that you're all going to enjoy uh, my my interview with him. Uh, before we get to that, real quickly, I, I've been exchanging a few emails back and forth from the people over at TennisRound.com, and I, I just wanted to tell you all real quickly about this site. Basically, it's a place where you can find tennis partners and tennis courts in your local area, which I think is a great idea. And basically, they use Google Maps, and you can sign up for an account for free and basically mark you know, your, your local courts as where you like to play, tell people what level you are, and you can also search for other courts in your area and other, other players in your area. Um, let's see, it says here that they have courts listed in over 4,200 cities, and they have players registered in over 600 U.S. cities. So, you know, so much of the instruction that I give here on the podcast is are, are things that you should be doing cooperatively with another player. And this is a great way to find players who are online, you know, they're tech savvy and they're really taking the game seriously. So check it out. Uh, again, that's at Tennis Round, like a circle, TennisRound.com. And it's uh, totally free. All right. So with that, let's go ahead and get to today's interview. Sit back, relax, and get ready for some great tennis instruction. My guest today on the Essential Tennis Podcast is Brent Abel. He runs webtennis.com, which I'm sure a lot of you uh, listening are already very familiar with. Brent, thank you very much for taking some time out uh, to spend with me and to talk about tennis and learning about tennis and getting better. It's really great to have you on the show. Thanks, Ian. Uh, appreciate you inviting me on and, and looking forward to, to talking with you today. Likewise. Well, let's start off. For, for those of my listeners who maybe aren't familiar with you and your website yet, although I'm, I'm sure that they'll be in the minority, can you please talk to us a little bit about your experience as both a teacher and as a player? And then we'll talk about the website after that. But can you tell everybody um, what your background is as far as being a tennis teacher and a player are? Yeah, I mean, I've you know been playing tennis for a long, long time. I was born and raised at well, not not literally born and raised at the Berkeley Tennis Club, but uh, you know, <laughs> learned learned how to play tennis there when I was a young kid, and um, started teaching actually when I was pretty young. I was in, in my early twenties and and got started then, and and really, uh, you know, taught at a number of different tennis facilities around the country, and. Um, actually a little bit of teaching in Europe for, for a summer, but yeah, I really, where, where I really got organized and, you know, really kind of got my legs under me as a, as a teaching pro was when I worked with Tom Stowe, who was a legendary coach and, and teaching pro here in Northern California. Uh, that was back in the early eighties and, and he really kind of transformed my game from, 
you know, the classic older kind of cliches, uh, which, you know, really weren't very descriptive to, uh, you know, much more of a teaching style that, um, you know, really was more of a system. And uh, it really basically was just you know, really focused on the fundamentals. He wouldn't, you know, really let you get away with any kind of artificial stuff. And, and so that's really where my teaching um, uh, is, is based on. And, you know, then as a player, I've been, you know, I play a lot of senior tennis. Um, you know, I've won a couple of national senior titles, uh, won a doubles back in 1984, 35 hard courts, and actually won a, a singles title a couple of years ago, the 60 national hard courts. And so I keep, you know, I keep playing a lot. I love to compete and uh, I love to teach. And, and uh, so it's been, you know, it's been a long teaching career, 35 plus years. And, and I find that, uh, you know, my mantra now, Ian, is that the more I teach, the realize that my job is really much more about kind of helping players take things away from what they do that kind of get away uh, or, or sort of interfere with the fundamentals as opposed to, you know, trying to, trying to add things to the game. So uh, that's where I'm at now and, uh, and uh, enjoying it, I think, more than ever. Well, I, I just have to say that and, and – this is something I kind of look for when um, when I'm looking at a, a tennis teacher. I think something that's really important to me and speaks volumes to me about their their passion for the game is seeing if they still play themselves. And uh, you know very well um, that it's very, very rare to see somebody who teaches tennis full-time that actually still plays themselves. And so... I'm really impressed that uh, throughout your uh, teaching career and, and still still now uh, at an age where, where so many tennis players are starting to just complain and play less and less and less, uh, you're, you're, it sounds like you're playing more than ever. And that just, I think, is really impressive. Well, I appreciate that. You know, one of the things that's helped me be able to play a lot more and kind of tinker with my game is, is as you were mentioning before, Ian, is, you know, now with the internet, uh, is that I can now do all of my teaching online, which, you know, before the internet, you know, I was out on the court 30, 35, 40 hours a week, uh, you know, and it's really, you know, it's manual labor. I mean, it is tough on the body. And there, <laughs> it is hard, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I can't really say, I, I can't agree with you and say that, you know, yeah, I'm teaching 30, 35, 40 hours a week and playing a lot of senior stuff because I'm not. There are a couple of guys out there that just blow my mind that, you know, have been able to over the years, you know, in my age group, you know, 60s, uh, who still continue to teach upwards to 30 hours a week, uh, if not more, and are extremely successful as players. I mean, those guys, you know, are just, I, I guess, you know, physical freaks. But, <laughs> no, I, I, I do agree with you. I mean, I'm getting as much enjoyment right now uh, working on my game as I ever have before. And awesome. like I said before, so much of that is, you know, what can I do to really strip away stuff so that um, I, I just really get to focus on the fundamentals? Well, let's let's transition now over to your your website because I, I want to make sure that all my listeners go uh, check it out and see what you have to offer there. When did you transition over to being uh, more of a full time online teacher instead of uh, you know actually in person on the courts? Right. Uh, when did you get started with that? And, and tell us a little bit about the website in general. Uh, you know, I got I got the domain webtennis.net uh, back in 1999, and I did that just because. 
I, I knew that I wasn't going to physically be able to teach tennis for the rest of my life. And, and so, um, I, but I wanted to keep my hand in the game somehow and continue to earn a living through, through teaching. And I just, you know, I just sort of hoped and felt at that time that this might might be an opportunity. Uh, webtennis.com at the time was owned by someone in South America who was doing nothing with it. Hmm. And uh, it took me a few years to finally be able to buy it from them. Um, but, you know, yeah, I started uh, back in 1999 and just kind of tinkered with it. And uh, back then, there really wasn't any kind of a blueprint to kind of work from as to how to you know, build a simple website. Now we've got blogs, how to, how to market stuff. And, uh, so in 2005, uh, I, I'd been at the California tennis club as their head grow and tennis director for about seven years. And I just had enough money saved up at that time where I felt that if I could really devote full time to, uh, the hours that I thought I needed to be able to, you know, really develop this business online, that I'd be able to do it. So, October 2005, I took the big gulp and told the guys over there, <laughs> you know what, uh, it's been great, but I'm going to try and do this. So, um, I resigned from there, uh, the California Tennis Club, in, in October of '05, and you know, been going full time ever since then. And I'm sure that I, you know, put in a lot more hours than I ever did as, you know, an encore teaching pro, but. Uh, you know, as you know, Ian, I mean, it, it is a fun way to teach. It's very rewarding. And, you know, now I've got students globally as opposed to, um, you know, just uh, the students at, at, at one club. So I've been doing it now full time for, for almost six years. Awesome. Well, I, I urge everybody listening to go check out uh, Brent's website. It's great. Lots of really good, solid, free instruction, which is the number one thing that I look for when, when I come to a new tennis instruction website is uh, I, I want to see if the people running that site are willing to 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 give you know to to give free stuff away and 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 give instruction and give things that are valuable um, to you know just to give value to the community in general and that's something that uh, you don't have any problem doing Brent and I, I think that's really important so uh, thanks for doing that <laughs> sure sure. So let's go ahead and start getting to some uh, instructional topics, and I've got a, a list of them here. They they vary in um, category from uh, technique to single strategy, double strategy. I'm not sure how much time we'll have to get to uh, we'll have to be able to get to all of them, but um, I, I tried to pick out some questions that I thought would be good uh, discussion uh, points for us. So question number one I have for you, Brent. I, I'm curious about this one. Uh, it has to do with the internet, the internet, and and how more and more players are figuring out that you can find a lot of tennis instruction online. So with that in mind, and things are kind of just starting starting to get going online as far as tennis instruction is concerned. What do you think is the most commonly misunderstood element of tennis instruction? online yeah in in one word it's topspin and ah. i think there's a real overemphasis on 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 topspin and you know i mean it's not really it, it's not the fault of the players who are looking for help and i think it's more the fault of the pros who are sort of looking at today's touring pros as the models and you know what what the guys and the gals on the, on the tour are doing now with, with the racket technology and the string technology to a tennis ball is it's just unrealistic that you can expect 
um, you know, the rest of us, the 99.9% of the players in the world that don't make, you know, money playing, playing in the pro tour, it's just unrealistic to think that you can base, uh, your singles game, especially, you know, worse, worse than in, in doubles on, on just big kind of top spin, kind of, you know, extreme semi to full Western forehand grips and think that you can stay back in the baseline and, and just kind of grip and rip all day. And I think that, um, Again, it's it's easy to look at the pros, and you can you know with all the technology we've got now, so easy to look at a video. You can go to YouTube and you can watch, you know, you can watch Rafa um, in slow motion in real time and whatever frame by frame. And someone out there is going to tell you, well, this is this is what he does, and I can teach you how to do this. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> and you know the reality is, is you just can't teach the rest of us to do that. I mean. You know, yeah, I suppose if you're young enough um, that you can, from time to time, you can you can hit a Rafa-like forehand, uh, but you just can't consistently do it uh, over the course of your life. And and really, you know, my job, and I think your job too, Ian, is that as, as tennis teaching pros, you know, really our focus is going to be, you know, what can we do to help students play the game for the rest of their lives? And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, almost mid sixties and, you know, and I feel like if you have got, you know, quote unquote, all court game, which means that, I mean, yeah, from time to time, you've got to be able to hit, you know, a little heavy top, which, which you can do now with, um, you know, an Eastern forehand grip. You can also do it with a semi Western forehand grip, but it's got to be done at the right time. But I think the point is, is that you've got to have all the grips, uh, you've got to have all the strokes, and the reason for that is you really want to be an all-court player. You want to be able to, you know, not be limited to just the baseline. You want to be able to transition. You want to be able to have volley, to, to volley, um, play drop shots, and if you get too tied into thinking topspin uh, is a way that you want to play the game of tennis, uh, I just think that you get super limited. And worst case, you know, our, our bodies, unless you're a you know, a professional level, world class, world class level athlete. You know, someone like you know Rafa. Realistically, you're just not going to be able to copy what he does. So, with all the crazy stuff that professional players are doing these days, and the you know the huge amounts of power and topspin that's being generated, and the combination of that with you know our modern technology with uh, being able to share video and in really high you know resolutions and frame rates and all of that is there are, are rather are there things that my listeners you know your your typical recreational level player trying to get their game to the next level um in your opinion are there things that we can still learn from the pros even th- even though they're doing such crazy stuff on the court and if so can you give us an example or, or two of of what we should look for to to you know, things that are good to try to copy from professional players? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think one of the things that we can look at uh, that they do really well, and, and you really have to train this, and is just the consistency that they have with their spacing. And what I mean by spacing is their, you know, spatial distance away from the path of the incoming ball. You know, they, they are so consistent with it that really the swing, you know, these guys make the swing look so easy. And the reason that it looks so easy is because the ball is always exactly where they want it to be. You know, what I think happens to rec players, and it's, it's mostly um, that they crowd the ball. I mean, you know, sometimes the ball is too far away, but, but, but typically what, what happens spacing-wise, air-wise, is that they just 
jam themselves the ball. They just get too close. So, you know, what I tell people to do is, is really look at the points of contact uh, that the pros have in terms of their consistency. You know, in reality, you might have to make your point of contact slightly different than, the, than, than what they do. But I think if you watch them, and I look, at, I look back at, at, at Andre um, Agassi on his return to serve, you know, and arguably one of the greatest returners to serve ever, um, you could chart exactly where he made contact when he, when he, when he returned serve. And I think the chart would just be tiny. It'd just be a little pin dot in terms of, you know, the exact ideal contact point that he wanted. Uh, where you look at a lot of rec players, I mean, that chart's pretty big. I mean, there's a dot here, there's a dot there. It's just kind of all over the board. So, you know, my advice always is to, you know, work on your spacing first. And once you find out what is your ideal point of contact for, let's say, your, you know, your, your, your natural topspin forehand ground stroke, well, then all you have to do is, is just absolutely work your feet so that you get yourself in that position every time you're always getting in that good, in that good hitting position. All right. Great. Good stuff, Brent. Um, next up, let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about tactics a little bit, uh, strategy. And let's start off with uh, singles strategy specifically. I, I'm curious if if you had to pick just one element of singles strategy that, you know, if you could only get one point across to a recreational player or my, my uh, listening audience in this uh, case that you think is just the most important thing to understand about singles strategy, uh, what would that be? Well, I think... The, the one thing I would get them to think about is that the game uh, needs to be played more on a vertical type of strategy as opposed to a horizontal. And horizontal is where we think, all right, we're going to move our opponent from, from side to side back on their baseline. And too often what happens is, is I see a lot of good uh, shots get, get played to a corner or out wide and you get your opponent stretched out and you don't move forward in anticipation of getting you know, a relatively short ball or even a ball that you could volley sort of as a transitional shot um, to, to the open court. So what, what, what I like to teach is the value of a vertical attack, meaning that if, if you've got someone who can really run all day long, you know, you've, you've really got to be able to try to draw them into the net and then, and then either you go for the pass or else you go for the lob over their backhand. I think at, at the rec level, the one shot that, that players don't work on enough is they do produce a lot of short balls from, from their opponents. And rather than always playing an approach shot, you know, I really encourage my students to work on what looks like an approach and then you play a drop shot. And so... I, I, I want you know I want my students sort of always making their opponents think that you know there's there's always a chance that you're going to have to move up and and once you get them anticipating that then I think the side to side starts starts to work a little bit better but you know I always try to get my my students thinking geometrically you know what's the difference between a horizontal and a vertical attack. What and by the way, I totally agree with you that I think recreational players tend to really kind of overfocus on the the horizontal aspect. Oh, my my opponent is off the court, over to the right, so I guess I should hit the ball to the left. You know what what is it? Is it just a visual thing that for whatever reason that seems to be so obvious to like beginner tennis players, and yet when their opponent 
is stretched out and having a hard time to get to the ball. Um, they don't even think that the ball might be coming back short. And they actually end up losing the point when they should have been already moving in and anticipating that short ball. It, what is it about that difference between the horizontal game and the vertical game that it just seems so much more obvious to recreational players, the, the right to left uh, part of it? Yeah, I think a lot of it is um, is this whole concept about not playing shots in no man's land. You know what we what we've defined as no man's land, which is, you know that 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 area inside uh, the baseline and probably you know right around the service line, and so I think players get intimidated about having to play shots in there, and and so whether that's you know instinctive, just you know I don't want to go in there, don't want to play a transitional half volley, transitional right. volley from in there, whatever it is, you have to kind of desensitize the student and, and just say look. You know, we're just going to practice this thing until it feels really comfortable for you. And I think once they feel comfortable with playing that transitional volley from no man's land, you know, I mean, you're really not talking about a very difficult uh, technical shot. Uh, all, all that you're going to do is really just kind of lay it over the open court and move on up inside the service line and force your opponent to pass you. Uh, but, you know, a lot of it is just not recognizing that you're going to get a short ball. And uh, for me, I'd much rather get a transitional volley uh, than have to get a short ball where that, where you know Ian as well as I do. I mean that that short ball lands about three feet right behind the tee and it just sits there, and you got no pace. And so now the technique on on whether you're forehand or backhand has really got to be good. So for me, it's a much easier shot to train to play a transitional volley. Uh, once you know, once that player recognizes, I've got them stretched out. The chances of them getting a really tough ball back to me are not very good. Uh, number one, but you know, the other way to look at it too, a lot of times you'll get a player stretched out, and out of desperation, they're going to hit the ball pretty hard. Well, I don't mind playing that transitional volley from no man's land when I get a lot of pace, because I know that I've got the ball. I've got something that I can just redirect. And because there's so much pace coming in, that opponent is really still hung out to dry. So I've got a much bigger court to be able to hit into. Well, I think that's a really good transition uh, over to doubles. That's why I wanted to ask you about next, um, as far as transitional volleys and half volleys uh, are concerned. So, and maybe your, your answer will be really similar for doubles. So, so if you had to just get one point across uh, strategy-wise to recreational players about doubles, what, what would that be? Yeah, I mean, you know, strategy or technique-wise, you know, learning how to play the transitional shot, not fearing no man's land, is um, is is really the shot that is going to make or break you as a good doubles player. You know, if you get stuck back in the baseline, either you're going to lob, you know, your opponents to death, you know, or you're going to go for just too big a shot. You're going to end up um, going for for winners, and that's always a recipe for disaster. So, you know, yeah, I, I think that you know. Um, learning how to play that cross-court half-volley, the the cross-court transitional uh, half-volley or volley, even an approach shot uh, from no man's land, which is it's just not realistic to think that you can serve and get up inside the service line or that you can, you know, chip and charge a return to serve or or even play, um, you know, an approach shot and and not have to play a ball inside that uh, no man's land area. So, you know, again, it's like anything else in, in tennis. You know, you might be fearful of it in the beginning, but but the more you practice it, 
the more you desensitize yourself to that fear and the more you start believing that, you know what, I can play this shot and, and by playing it, you really end up, you know, putting you and your partner in a good net position. And, and, uh, you know, you know, as well as I do with your, with your doubles domination that, uh, you know, once you get both players up inside the service line, uh, the majority of the points are going to be won by the team that gets up there first. Absolutely. I totally agree. And that's, um, I mean, that, that's, that's really kind of the, uh, uh, the whole, the, the whole devil's domination course is really geared towards helping players understand that that really is true. Cause I, I think so many recreational players are incredibly skeptical of having both players up at the net. Um, the, you know, they've had poor experiences, uh, you know, getting loved, not having good, effective, uh, volleys so that they can actually take advantage of that not being confident with their overheads etc etc um and yeah that's that's kind of my quest <laughs> when it comes to doubles is uh, getting recreational players comfortable in that formation because i i totally agree with you that's by far the most uh uh advantageous position that you can be in uh in doubles yeah it just takes practice i mean that's you know i say that kind of very cavalierly but <laughs> right <laughs> it really is one of those things that the guys who put in the most time the most practice time in the court are the ones that progress the quickest and you know i don't care how good a teaching pro you are i don't care how much experience you've got you know no one's really kind of got the magic bullet uh you know the magic pill you can pull out of your pocket and say here you know, now you've got this information, now you know the answer, you know, just go do it. So um, it's one thing to say, it's another thing for the student to, you know, actually decide, all right, well, for me to actually be able to do this thing you're talking about, I got to put in the time, I got to put in the practice. And, you know, you know, as well as I do, that is a big time challenge uh, for teaching pros to really inspire their students uh, to put in that time. Absolutely. Well, with that, let's change gears one more time. And um, when I ask you a really important question here, and and I know that you picked it out as probably your favorite out of the ones that I presented to you. And so so let's finish with this one because um, I'm curious to see what you have to say about it. And I know my listeners will be as well. And uh, that question is, what would your advice be to somebody who feels like they've been stuck in a rut with their tennis improvement for months or maybe even years? You know, that's really a good question, Ian. And I got two things. Number one, there's a great book out there by a guy named George Leonard. It's called Mastery. And uh, this book has been around for a long time. It's a small little book. You can get it over at Amazon, I think. Um, But it's really about the realities of how we learn and how we improve. And, you know, we all want to think that the the improvement – line is like a gradual line on a graph. You know, it starts at zero and it kind of gradually works its way up to wherever you get really good at something. And the reality is it doesn't happen like that. You know, there's, there's lots of kind of ups and downs and, and, and there are plateaus and there are times when you kind of get what you think is stuck on a plateau. Um, but you're really not, you're really, if you keep hammering away, if you keep practicing, you know, that, that, that next jump up, whether it's a half level or, you know, a, a whole other level on, a, on, on your tennis game in general, or maybe it's something that you're working on, it's really waiting to just about happen. And, you know, a lot of people get impatient and they just kind of bail out, you know, right before the improvement happens. So, sure. you know, the first thing I would say is to go buy that book. Uh, it's called Mastery. It's by George Leonard. And then the second thing 
that I would advise is that you do some specific off-court training to where you work on your speed, uh, but it's not just you know pure raw sprinting speed. It's it's where you're working on your speed, and you're also working on maintaining visual contact initially with a stationary object. Hmm. So what I do sometimes um, is I'll you know if I'm getting ready for a tournament, I'll do some sprints, a series of sprints, but out in the landscape, uh, I'll find a stationary object. So, you know, you, you could find a court number on a on a tennis court, or you could find a gate latch or something like that, and you could sprint right towards it. But what you're trying to do is make sure that that stationary object that you're looking at as you're sprinting is not bouncing up and down. Because, you know, like, like we talked about earlier, I, I think if you want to watch the pros, one of the things they do really well, and we've never really measured it, I don't think, is how well – do they visually track a moving ball as they're also moving? Hmm. And that's why I think they've got such good consistency with their, with their spacing and contact. And most players, you know, if they do some off-court training, they might do some stretching and strengthening. Very few players do speed work where they're really working on a combination of speed and maintaining visual contact with uh, initially a stationary object, and then you can find ways to kind of introduce a moving object, which is really what we do in tennis you know we got to move and we got to we got to visually maintain contact with a tennis ball that's that's not as easy as it sounds so you know if 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 you're stuck in a rut um get the book and do some off-court training uh where it's going to really sort of help you get much more consistent with your spacing and then once you do that you know what the strokes are pretty darn easy so that would be my advice there Huh, that's interesting. I think that's probably the opposite of what most people would probably suggest. Most most teachers would probably suggest. I think I think most teachers would probably go the opposite way around and say, go get a lesson, figure out what your technical deficiencies are, you know, video record yourself, see um, what technique mistakes you're making, then go repeat those over and over and over again. Why? What's your um, reasoning behind uh, going about it from that direction as opposed to a more traditional, I guess, technical way of going about it? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think most players, uh, if you look at their strokes, you know, and everyone looks a little different. Everyone's got a little different setup. Everyone's got a little different swing shape, point of contact, grips, all that stuff are you know, a little bit different. But I think if you look at most rec players that they can tell you, you know, if you were to underhand feed them 10 forehands, for example, that out of those 10, you'd find one or two, you know, in a controlled situation where the swing was pretty good. Might not look like Federer's, might not look like a top pro, but the result is that it gets the job done. It hits the ball cross court, it gets the ball safely over the top of the net inside the baseline. And so really what I think that you're trying to do in the long run is you're trying to create this situation where it's it's less about the technique and it's much more about can you get yourself in the right hitting position. I mean, golfers, look at golfers, Ian. I mean, I'm not going to say, geez, what an easy game. <laughs> I mean, the ball's sitting there. They get to position themselves <laughs> stance-wise exactly where they want to be. Right. They're never going to crowd the ball. They're never going to be too far away from the ball. They're always going to set up so that 
so that their swing, whatever swing they have, has got the best chance of being as simple as possible. And so I think it's the same thing in tennis. I think if you can get consistent with your spacing, that you're going to find that you don't have to improvise. Uh, let's you know mm-hmm. use the forehand groundy as an example, that you don't have to improvise it um, as much. And, and you know once you start improvising your swing, um, just bad things happen. You know, you lose your you lose your consistency in this. You know, in the one swing that you've got that's decent. Um, and I, you know, I'm not saying that we should ever stop tinkering with with our technique, but I think that if you don't have the spacing down right first, it doesn't matter how good your technique is. You could have you know someone could underhand feed you ten very easy balls, and you could hit them perfectly because they're because they're being fed right to your sweet spot. But if now you start, you know, feeding them from the baseline off the racket or during a point, I think what you'll probably find is that, you know, unless you've been working on 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 your spacing, unless you've been working on moving to where you visually track the ball well, you're going to find ten different looking forehands. So, um, that's what I would suggest first, and then you know, once you got your spacing down, yeah, then then really you can start to fine tune. Uh, the technique and and you know for me it's all about well what can I strip away that's getting in the way of really you know having the fundamentals uh, any kind of flair any kind of stuff that's artificial just um, doesn't really do the student any good and uh, so yeah I don't know if that's really a you know a non-traditional response but but you know in my experience of teaching and playing is that the spatial distance from you to the path of the incoming ball is really where it's at. Oh, Brent, that really, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm, I'm glad I asked you to, uh, to elaborate on that. Um, that, it's, I mean, that really makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I'm sure everybody listening at home uh, can really see where you're coming from uh, with that as well. And I've, just the other day I was doing a, a platinum um, show and giving feedback to somebody who had submitted videos to me on his forehand ground stroke several times and we, we'd made some some good you know tweaks and technical changes and he was looking really really solid consistently um, in a controlled rally or, or hitting against the ball machine and uh, just rec- recently he sent me point play video. And I didn't see any of those forehands, <laughs> and it was like totally different. It, just the way that you were just describing, you know, tossing to somebody they can make ten in a row, but then um, I, I really like how you use the word improvise. You know, they get into a, a situation where they're having to move dynamically, and all of a sudden you see all kinds of different results and different techniques and different swing paths and follow throughs, and um, so. I, I just wanted to say I, I totally see what you're talking about, and uh, I think that was a really good explanation. Yeah, no, I, I I agree, and it's you know it's it's I think one of the reasons it's not taught very much is because it's kind of boring. I mean, it's not much fun. Sure, yeah. And it it gets back to that student that if 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 you're really willing to put in, you know, the dirty work and and do the things that will allow you to be consistent, which is really what we're trying to get to. Um, and you know, I'm not saying that you have to be. A pusher, and you know, consistency doesn't mean that you're a pusher, but but consistency means that you allow the ball to get into the ideal contact zone, you know, more often than 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 uh, the next guy, and and the only way you can do that is to really, you know, start with some underhand feeds, 
find out what's, you know, we're using the forehand as an example, find out, you know, what's your ideal point of contact? How far away is that from you? You know, once you find it, your job then is to replicate that spacing on whatever ball is fed to you. You know, one of the things I do teach um, and that I think about when I play in is that every time I see a ball coming to me, I want to resist the, the, the instinct of, you know, where am I going to hit this shot? For example, if I get a forehand and I want to and I want to go cross court with it, well, that's fine. But if I don't have the right spatial distance to the path of that incoming ball to take a cross court, I got a problem. So for me, what I always make sure I do is I look at incoming balls and I first of all I think you know spacing. I want to get this right distance away from the ball, and then the instincts just kind of take over as to what shot you want to hit. You know, way too often I see players, we're talking about, you know, you get someone pulled off the court, they give you a short ball, you want to take it to the open court, and I see players run right into that ball. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Just absolutely crowded, and by the time they get there, there's nothing to do. Right. And so, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, you, you, you do want to commit to where you're going to hit it, but if you don't have the spatial distance right uh, first, you know, then it's your then it's, then it's improv central. Um, so, so Brian, yeah. Listen, great stuff. I, I want to, at this point, uh, say thank you very much for your time. It, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I know that my listeners are really going to enjoy listening to this interview. Uh, so thank you so much for spending the time with me. I, I really appreciate it a lot. You're welcome, Ian. Anytime. I enjoyed it. Great questions, and uh, uh, hopefully I, you'll reciprocate and and we'll be able to do the same over webtennis.com sometime. Absolutely. That'd be great. And in the meantime, uh, everybody listening, definitely go check out Brent's web, uh, website at webtennis.com. It's got a lot of great stuff over there. And with that, I'll wrap it up. So, Brent, uh, thanks again, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks. Thanks, Ian. All right, that does it for episode number 177 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Thank you so much for spending your time with me and for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate that, as always. Uh, please remember that the best way to get the podcast is by using iTunes and subscribing to the show. That way you can automatically download every new episode as it comes out. And yeah, go check that out. Free uh, download from Apple. So um, with that, I'm going to wrap up today's episode. If you have any comments about today's episode, my, my interview with Brent, go leave them on the website and I'll respond and, and read a couple of them back in uh, next week's episode. You can do that by simply going to EssentialTennis.com slash podcast, click on episode number 177, and leave any uh, thoughts that you might have about uh, our talk today. All right, with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, say goodbye until next week. Take care, and good luck with your tennis.